You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Carson Block, one of the world's best known and most successful activist short sellers. His journey is fascinating and often misunderstood. Our discussion was eye opening and compelling. Enjoy the conversation. So, hi, Carson. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Thanks. Good to be here. So, before we jump into your four choices, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? What was young Carson Block like? <laughs> Probably uh, more trusting of the world than uh, present day Carson Block. But um, yeah, I. I Grew up in a wealthy suburb of New York City, but I kind of grew up on the outside looking in. And um, I think that's one of the ways I got here really was because I ended up being pretty critical of very establishment people and families just because socially that's what it's like being on the outside. And yeah, I went to USC to study finance. I had expected I'd always wanted to go into investing. And after a little detour in China, right after graduated USC, I was did some investment banking, and then I was in equity research with my father uh, from 1999 through 2002, and we were focusing on micro cap companies, but in some small caps, and we were getting lied to routinely. It turns out, and so between 99 and 2002, it wasn't just at the bottom end of the market, right? It was also yeah. Enron, WorldCom, Health South, Tyco, etc. So it seemed like the market was littered with dirt bags from top to bottom. And I became disillusioned with investing because of that. So I went to law school thinking that that would give me some tools to better help protect myself as an investor. That's literally what I was thinking about was protecting myself. If I can interrupt you for one second, it sounds like it's interesting that you because, you know, I reported through all that time and there were still people who were like, oh, that's a one off. Yeah. Like got right back on the wagon. Right. Because it wasn't just one one scandal. It kind of happened over and over again. And there were always people willing to believe it. It sounds like you were very critical, even from a young age. Why did you feel like an outsider? Well, when I grew up in this town called Summit, New Jersey, it seemed like I was surrounded by postcard perfect families. Mm. And I, my parents divorced when I was young. One of my parents descended into alcoholism that became well known. And so it was something where the very pretty people, they didn't want their kids playing with me and as the parents. And then, yeah, later through, the, and that really, those stigmas stuck with me mm -hmm. until I got to high school. And then later, yeah, it led to, yeah, and it led me having a chip on my shoulder. And a good friend of mine, Josh Wolf, is fond of saying chips on shoulders put chips in pockets. So in many respects, I wouldn't be where I am without that, I suppose. Of course, the corollary is maybe I'd be running Goldman Sachs if none of this shit happened. So in any event, you know, I'm, I did okay for myself. Like, I'm, I'm content. Well, you certainly, I mean, that is, that is a tough thing to go through as a child. And the fact that you were able to figure out how to survive, first of all, and then how to harness it and live with it um, is a big deal. I mean, that's a big deal. Well, the rage, the rage was always there. The rage never goes away. 
And that's kind of how I got to where I, I did because to shortcut it, when I was being lied to as in the first leg of my career, it made me really angry. And so the first instinct was, how do I protect myself? So law school. Then I found myself in China as a lawyer, and then I opened the first self-storage business in mainland China and talk about being lied to. And, you know, there's, there's a condition that uh, there's a type of person that entrepreneurs in China have to confront at least once in their careers, especially if they're foreign entrepreneurs. And it's what I call the business assassin. And their mission becomes to put your business down. And when I confronted that person, I initially thought, you know, this is exhausting. And I, I talked through with my wife and I was like, look, if they take the business, I don't know, let's, let's go to Malaysia or Thailand for a few months, somewhere we can eat fresh food and get healthy and then figure it out. But right before that was to happen, right before the deadline that had been, been imposed on me uh, lapsed, I changed my mind. I said, fuck that. Okay, they're going to have to drag me out of that self-storage warehouse with the floor enamel under my fingernails. And so I had installed steel bars on the doors and I had it provisioned with food and water for weeks and a generator and sleeping bag. And I was going to go and be like the Gandhi of self-storage hanging banners out the window protesting because it was actually a government, quasi-government actor that was doing yeah. this. So in any event, um, the, the local... Uh, government stepped in and prevented this from happening. But, you know, like that was, I was pushed so hard all these times in business there that, yeah, it just added to the rage. So when in June of, well, in early 2010, when I came across this Chinese, China-based company that was listed in the U.S. that was a total fraud called Orient Paper, I didn't really know I was writing this report. I was broke. I had to hit my credit card up for $2,000 of put options. But I wrote it as psychotherapy and the report went viral. And so for the first few years, I mean, even beyond once we started going beyond China it, and just relating to my angst that I built up earlier in my career. And then, yeah, the, the rage inside of me that I'm sure will always be there no matter what. Um, this was just psychotherapy. And I went to town for a few years and went really hard and writing these reports was therapeutic. So you've established a reputation um, as somebody who does these reports. Uh, are you shorting the stock yourself? Are you an activist? How would you describe yourself before? And then we'll get into your first trade. So wh what are you calling yourself at this point? Well, when I started, okay, I was, again, like I purchased just $2,000 worth of puts and I wanted everybody to think that my position was bigger than it actually was because I didn't want to get sued. So if they felt like I had a real position, they wouldn't have sued me. So back then I was a pretender. Um, when I did the second trade, Orient, or sorry, Rhino, I raised some capital ahead of time from some paying research clients, so people who subscribed to the research to get an advanced copy. And so then I guess I was, and I took that and I bought put options with it. So at that point I was an activist short seller mm -hmm for real. And following that, um, I worked with a balance sheet provider. So it was a hedge fund that said, okay, you don't have to go through, jump through all the hoops of setting up a fund, which would have been completely impractical at that time anyway. 
we'll, we'll put the trades on and we'll pay you a percentage of the profit. So I did that for the next couple of years through 2013. And then by 2013, my group and I, we had enough of our own capital to, for the most part, do our, do our trading just through an interactive broker's account. Now we would hit, we would have problems if we wanted to do something listed overseas because interactive brokers wasn't great at getting that borrow, but uh, depending on the market. Um, but in any event, then I was speaking at an Iris own conference in 2014 and this university endowment, they came up to me, they were at the conference and said, love what you do. Would you manage a hundred million? Said, all right, sure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So you're on this up to upward trajectory, um, and this is, I think, the time period where we're going to get into your first trade um, that that stands out to you. And it's also one of your worst, I believe, and that's AMT, American Tower Corp. And so this is a, a back in around July 2013, so you're pretty established. So set the scene for us around this trade. You know What brought it to your attention? Um, have you been successful with all of your guesses so far? Like, What's your level of confidence going into it, and what are you thinking? Sure. So I think through that point, through American Tower, pretty much everything we had done, which was mostly China-based frauds, just about everything we had done had been like a great short. The one exception had been 2012 Olam, which was basically acquired by Tomasek because of our report. Because the, I mean, we exposed some real issues with the company and Tomasek was the largest outside shareholder. And I think there were strategic reasons regarding Singapore and its position as a trading center. So Tomasic basically had bought it out. Uh, I guess the other one that at that point was oh so-so, but became a really bad long-term short was also 2012 was uh, New Oriental Education. But in any event, for the most part, our record was sterling. I think we'd had um, five companies delisted by then, four or five companies. So when American Tower came along, um, it was something that, our balance sheet provider had come across. And it was a REIT, it was questionable, although at that time it was questionable as to whether it should really be considered a REIT because it owned portfolio of cell phone towers. Mm. So it bought these towers from, uh, from network operators, leased them back, and then leased them to other network operator tenants as well. And the so it was priced for perfection at the time. That's that's how we how we put it. And there were some real issues. They had decided to go suddenly, I think just maybe two or three years earlier, into a bunch of emerging and frontier markets. So after they went into these emerging frontier markets, all of a sudden we saw that they were overpaying for assets and making what we thought were mistakes. So sort of the garden variety overpayment was, was the following. If you're a network operator, you know, based on what market rents for this tower would be, maybe I would pay you uh, $50,000 for this tower. 
but you say, hey, I would actually like to book a big gain on sale because you know I'm coming up end of my year and I wanna and I wanna have more cash. So we'd say, you know, as American Tower, we'd say, all right, look, it, you know, fifty thousand dollars is market. I'll pay you a hundred. I'll pay you one hundred fifty. I just need to see higher rents for ten years. So this was the first issue was that, and this wasn't illegal, but American Tower was paying above market in order to get above market rents from that anchor tenant. But that anchor tenant's initial rents were driving the street's modeling assumptions for what that tower would look like when it's rented up. So that was that was deceiving. Then the other thing was these leases generally sunset after ten years, and we assumed that when they when the if there were new leases signed with the original tenant after that, that they would be at the, what would the market rates would be, which should be a lot lower. So the way we looked at it was they were going into all of these countries that were high yielding countries where the sovereigns, even if they're dollar denominated, were yielding double digits, and they were borrowing. They're running a carry trade, so they're borrowing. In USD at low rates, and they're buying these immovable assets and leasing them to credits that are worse than the sovereigns. In many cases, for rates of return that we estimated were within, were inside of what the sovereign bonds in USD would have paid. So this looks like a bad structure here for these for these trades. Now, the most interesting thing, though, and and what really we highlighted was that on a single Purchase single portfolio that um, AMT purchased in Brazil, called Site from a company called Site Sharing. It appeared that there was a significant amount of accounting fraud around that purchase, because what they reported paying, what AMT reported paying for that, was actually double what they really did pay.、Mm. So what they paid, I think, if I if I go back to it, I think they paid. The the issue was that there were two rei to the dollar at that time, and so the way that the misreporting happened was they paid a certain rei tower value, but they doubled it by saying that that was dollars, and so that was roughly so the total purchase price that they reported was five hundred million, give or take, and the actual purchase consideration was about two hundred fifty million. Now we had, you know, we knew this because it was in government documents. It's what people at Anatel. So the、uh, regulator down in Brazil, you know, we're, we're telling us was the actual per tower purchase price, and then we recorded conversations with the the controlling shareholder of Site Sharing saying like, yeah, you know, it was two hundred fifty million, and I don't know why they reported five five hundred million, and then also a former LATAM exec from American Tower who was involved in that purchase said, yeah, like. We paid that in rei, not in dollars, and I can't tell you why they reported this in dollars. So we thought, holy shit! Like this is this hardcore smoking gun, and we put the report out, and it didn't matter. Why didn't it matter? Yeah, and because we, we, from just the deed. First of all, I can't re- believe it this far removed from that that you remember every single detail、uh, like that. And we could tell it's a deep forensics. I get. I think we get a sense of your method. I mean, really deep forensic look at at the books and at the circumstances surrounding a company. Why didn't it matter? Well, I think that there were a few things here. So number one, the way we presented it was problematic. Coming out of a report that we did a few years earlier, Sinoforest, which is still, I think, the the name that we're best known for, the fraud that we're best known for exposing, 
We had taken this approach with Sinoforce because it was so egregious. There were so many problems. We had taken this approach where we kitchen synced the report, basically, with Sinoforce by putting in all of these problems from mm. the past 16 years. And we kept that kitchen sink approach and we took that into American Tower. And the problem that we got into with American Tower was in kitchen sinking it, we expressed some views on the fundamentals, specifically on the outlook for towers. Mm -hmm. And without banging the table, we said, hey, the tower business might not be unassailable, right? There's real demand from carriers to offload data traffic through cable modems and and small cell networks, et cetera. So maybe the tower is not this, is not a tower business shouldn't be priced for perfection in this way. And I think that's where we lost a lot of credibility with the major shareholders because I spoke with some of the major shareholders, the institutions right afterward, mm. after we issued the report. And that's what they had focused on because they spent, look, when we're looking at fraud and deceptive accounting or deceptive practices, that's really our lane. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the traditional equity analyst buy side or sell side is not going to be in that lane. But when what they look at is fundamentals. So they already had these well-formed views as to what the tower business was going to look like. So when we strayed from our lane and started saying, yeah, I don't know, like maybe you're a little too optimistic about this. I think we lost a lot of credibility there. That was one thing. Did you realize that right away? Did you real or did it take reflecting on afterwards? Well, it took the reality that they didn't sell yeah. <laughs> like, for that to for that to sink in. But something else that went on that was also it's also critical. I think maybe it was the most determinative factor in what ended up happening or not happening with American Tower, and it's really the a dark underbelly of the activist short selling business is that we were front run on that trade. And so what had happened was we didn't like we we crossed wires because when we saw all of this near dated put buying right before we put the report out, we thought it was our balance sheet provider, mm. but it wasn't. They weren't doing that. And our balance sheet provider thought that we were being the idiots and loading up on these near dated puts, but it wasn't we who were doing that. So it was third parties. And what happened was all there was a huge amount of puts near dated that were that their their expiration was right just a day or two, I think, after we published the report. So there was an enormous amount of delta hedging that had been put on by market makers. So we came out with the report and I think stock probably dipped a little bit, but then the delta hedges, then the whoever bought the puts starts selling the puts and the delta hedges start coming off and that provides a floor. Mm. And next thing you know, the stock just is flat. And so the stock closed flat, and this is one of the big lessons of activist short selling, which is if you don't have a strong day one, right? Everybody instead of in, in share, instead of shareholders saying, "Hey, you need to answer these tough questions that Muddy Waters posed," they're going to say, "Oh, thank fuck, we didn't lose money. All right, whatever. Like, you know that those bullets have been fired. Company's basically bulletproof uh, from this point forward." So. That's the problem. So if we had not been front run, like mm -hmm. like we had been front run, and if the stock had gone down, then I think there would have been a cacophony of shareholders insisting on more transparency and more accountability. And that, at the end of the day, is how you as an activist short seller get a win. It's that there's so much scrutiny on the company 
that people inside the company say, "Hey, I'm not comfortable doing this anymore or being a part of this," and things start to break. But without without a good first day, there probably isn't going to be that pressure or scrutiny. So that I think the die was cast day one for that to be a a bad a bad、uh, short. And I guess you're shouting in the wind. Does it bother you that it's not about the truth? That's just about. I mean, because if it was about the truth, then people would say, "Wow, this is this is not good." I mean, there, there's stuff going on. I hold this company. I'm being lied to. They would feel the same outrage you do, but they don't as long as the stock doesn't go down. I mean, look, I I have so many I have so many criticisms of the markets and worlds and investor and world and investor apathy. Investors have been anesthetized to risk. By the emergency monetary policies that have been in place since the global financial crisis, and so every year the bar has gotten higher for finding issues or stories that investors would care about, right? Like long side investors.、Mm. The issue is that if you cared about risk on the long side, between 2009 and whatever point in time, you were not remunerated for caring about risk.、Mm. You underperformed and lagged the people who just. Said, you know, like risk, you know, crush up some more of that blue pill and let me, you know, <laughs> snort that thing. So that's basically that. That's basically what made it a harder environment. And of course, we hit COVID. And it's like, oh well, what's the cure for too much leverage in the system? More leverage. And once again, you know, like the world is burning and the markets are ripping. And yeah, so I, I think there's. I think that AMT that when you when you ask about my frustration there, I think that that's just a microcosm of this much larger symptom of or much larger disease, I should say, of what happens to markets and whether they price in risk premia appropriately when the government's primary economic mandate has become to push markets up. That's a great point, and, and yet you persevere. So let's go to trade two. Your second trade happens to be one of your best, and that's Burford. If I'm saying it right, in August 2019. So you've had that disappointment, but you're still having success, I assume, in between,、um, and continuing to try to unearth this for investors, even though sometimes they're not paying attention. So what caught your eye about this? Okay, so Burford, that was an interesting. A very interesting trade for a few reasons.、So、going back to, we put that out in August of 2019. Since the fall of 2018, that's when Burford first hit our radar. The market cap was too big to be listed on AIM. So AIM is the alternative exchange in London. And pretty much, when you see something with a market cap of US one billion or more still listed on AIM, you should ask why. So. Burford is a litigation finance company, and they just had this great, smooth earnings growth. But it's because they fair value their litigation assets, and they take these markups. And so we began looking at it in the fall, kind of put it to the side for a little while, and then resumed looking at it when we found, and we found this one particularly egregious case in the early days of Burford of a mismarking where they had taken. They actually lost the case, or their the party that they were funding actually lost the case after Burford had marked it up and booked this big gain on it. They lost it, and Burford got issued stock in some penny, like some penny stock nano cap,
and it, to, to sort of make up, make up for the, the loss that it took. And the stock dropped like a rock and Burford never marked it down or they took years to mark it down. And so this was just a great example of the lengths to which they would go to print these beautiful earnings, but how little substance was actually underlying them. And we found a number of other issues, but we went public in, well, we got ready to put the report out in August of 2019. And by that time I was living up in Sonoma County. Um, the office of the firm was still in San Francisco. So I was staying down in San Fran at the, you know, at a hotel for a few days and morning my time the day before, probably about 1 PM UK time. Uh, I just tweeted out, um, something like, you know, coming out with a new, a new report or new campaign tomorrow, 8 AM London time. So I didn't expressly say it was London listed, but that was the implication. I'm like, all right, send, let me go down to the gym, catch a workout. So I'm in the hotel gym and, um, my, my now partner who, who was trading, uh, who trades our positions called me and he said, dude, Burford is getting smoked. I'm like what on your tweet, it's getting smoked. I'm like, Oh, like how could Burford be getting smoked? He's like Burford NMC and Rolls Royce on your tweet are dropping like rocks. I'm like, holy shit. Because people are just trying to guess which one you're going after. Yeah, well, and so NMC, you know, I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but this is what also led us to really look closely at NMC. <laughs> they flagged themselves so, <laughs> or shareholders. Right. Someone so, did. Well, yeah, because the, the thing is what the analogy that I used to describe what happened there with Burford in that tweet that had no reference at all that I think could be interpreted as being Burford. And it also applies to NMC Rolls Royce. I'm a little puzzled about, but whatever, um, is that you had these investors who and Burford stock had done this and you had these investors who owned Burford and they, I think they knew it was fucked up, right? Like they, a lot of them I think did, but they figured, Hey, this is a great party. You know, we're all getting drunk and you know, like whatever we're on a train, like the, we're partying on this train. We know this train doesn't actually have a destination other than the bottom of a ravine, but we're going to hang out on this train and party as long as we can. And when I sent that tweet out, I think the people on the train are like, yeah, oh, shit, <laughs> that might be the cliff. Like let's get off the train now just in case. So that happened with Burford and NMC. So Burford, I think closed down maybe 20% and we had taken, we had covered some of our position because I was worried. I'm like, was there a leak? Are we being front run again? Because like front running is the scourge of being an activist short seller, like time and again. Okay. Like that's, I've been saying that for many years, ever since AMT. So we covered some of the position and then, um, you know, then, so then market closed and we just got comfortable that it was this train thing and it wasn't that there was a leak. So, um, the next morning, so Burford put out a press release the next morning before the market opened saying that everything is great. And if this is about Burford, you know, I think they said we reserve our rights to sue. I think they put like the legal threat in that. But anyway, we wanted, we took more time to put the, to put the finishing touches on the report than anticipated. So the stock started trading again before we put the report out. So we increased our short position again 
And as the stock had rebounded on Burford saying, everything's wonderful, it can't be us. And if it is us, we'll sue. Um, so we put some more risk on and then we put the report out. And I don't remember what it closed down that day, but I think it was something like another 40%. Um, I mean, the company, look, it's a real business, but the marks, at least at that time, were just egregious. And I think that because of our report, there's been a lot of transparency that investors have gotten to understand that a lot of the gains that have been reported were related to what they call this Peterson claim, which is a claim against the government of Argentina over the expropriation of YPF. So you know, good luck with that one, guys. Like, I think that's a bagel and a half. But, you know, like the best part is they established their value by they, they also manage a fund and they had the fund purchase part of the claim in 2019 at, at this valuation. So they're like, okay, we're taking this mark up here, but they were on both sides of the trade there. So, yeah. So it must feel like a win after all of the work that goes into a report like that. How are you and the team feeling? Does it feel like you're vindicated that you're, you're getting justice? What's going through your mind? So here's another fucked up thing about activist short selling. Okay. The better you do in a way, the less relaxed you are. You start thinking like, these guys are gonna be pissed. They, they might sue, you know, like, okay, so don't celebrate, don't touch down dance because the lawsuits are probably coming and- So what keeps you doing it? You know, it, it's an interesting question, right? Because the, the asymmetry of what I do is tremendously skews against doing it. Because as I said, nothing that we do changes my financial picture much at all. But if we really fucked something up, like my house could be gone, I could be back at square one financially. So that's the horrific asymmetry of being an activist short seller, like once you're established. Um, you got to do it for the love of the game, I mean, is, is the bottom line. And during the time I've done this, I've seen a lot of activist short sellers come in, make some good money and say, this is not worth it. It's not worth the stress. It's not worth the, the, the legal fights, et cetera, et cetera. There are numerous times over the years when I passed up opportunities that probably would have been lucrative, but just didn't feel like they were on brand with the Muddy Waters brand that we had built. And so my attitude has been, I'm happy being moderately wealthy, but staying true to our principles and just not buying into you know, I don't know, just, just not straying from that. Now that has been my attitude, but reality is, um, you know, and this is deeper than I, I thought I would go in this interview by far, but I'm questioning that, that assumption these days, right? Like there, it's been well, it's been widely reported. There's a DOJ SEC investigation into a bunch of activist short sellers and, and hedge funds in the space. And I don't know, like, you know, the DOJ just got a $1.8 billion award last year um, based on an accredited in its initial criminal complaint, a report that we wrote in 2015 with creating the case. So we've had, I think, eight companies that we've published on be delisted by regulators after publication, got the $1.8 billion DOJ award, some other settlements and regulatory, successful regulatory actions. Mm. And I don't know, when the people who know what you're, like, should know the value of what you're doing, are they, th they say effectively, well, you know, maybe you're a problem or the problem. 
going back to that asymmetry that I talked about, it's like, I don't know, man, like, why am I, you know, why am I saying, fine, I'm content being moderately wealthy and eschewing all these opportunities that are not immoral, they're just amoral. Because we built a business on morality, on enforcing morality. We turned it into a business model that, like I said, pays reasonably well, but is not nearly capitalizing on our skills and the brand that we built. And so, yeah, today I am questioning that assumption. So your third trade, we talked about it because it came up in the same stock sell-off where nervous people who might have known the truth but weren't saying anything reacted, and that was NMC. So that was also a winner. But how long did that take after Burford to come to fruition when you started looking into it? We started looking at NMC, I think, at the end of October of 2019. So by October, ready to focus on new things. And we said, let's look at NMC. And so when we started looking at it, we got the impression that it was underreporting debt. Now, legally or questionable, one, one way was through questionable legality. The other way was just pretending the debt doesn't exist. So the questionable legality was, I mean, it's generally legal, but it's called reverse factoring. So companies that have issues with their debt ratings or don't want to seem too indebted, a lot of times what they start doing is they start having banks make loans to their suppliers. And so, but they guarantee, so the suppliers then get a receivable or, you know, from the company itself, from the public company. So the public company has an account payable instead of showing funded debt on the balance sheet. So it actually improves operating cash flow um, because it's, a, it's an increase in uh, operating liabilities. So, and from the bank's perspective, it's like, hey, you know, it's the same thing. This is secured by receivable by the company and maybe the company provides a, a guarantee outside of that anyway. So NMC was clearly doing that and they lied about it. We, we found, so we knew that they were doing that because their reverse factoring paper turned up in a Credit Suisse fund. So we got a hold of like a quarterly report for this Credit Suisse reverse factoring fund. And we saw there was NMC paper in there. Interesting thing, it was provide it was brokered by this uh, guy Lex Greensill or Greensill, which also recently imploded. Um, but so we knew that NMC was reverse factoring based on that. And NMC had been asked by the Jeffries analyst if they're reverse factoring, and they said no. So we're like, okay, they're lying. This is significant. But when we dug in a little more, we're like, you know, actually, like we can't make the, you know, the interest income that they claim on their cash square with what they say the cash balances are. And we also felt that we, we found some of these random like credit facilities from Middle Eastern banks that didn't appear to be reported or consolidated in the, uh, in the financials. So um, we then did field work and we found that this one hospital that they had, they had built, um, they'd massively overstated the CapEx there. So that's something you do when, you, when you're committing fraud. Because if you have fake profit, like inflated mm -hmm. profit, it should, you know, to some extent, it, it's supposed to show up as cash on the balance sheet. But when you don't actually have the cash, then you have to come up with an excuse not to have the cash. So when you're in a, when you're in a developing country, it's pretty easy to find a, a construction firm that, you know, you'll pay, you'll pay them 10 million, but they'll produce invoices for 30 million. And that's what you show your, your auditor. So 
this, the claimed construction cost of this one hospital called Bright, Bright Point was, I think it was like 3x what it should have been. It was clearly bullshit. So we're like, all right, we know these guys are keeping some debt illegally off the balance sheet or we're pretty sure they're obviously reverse factoring and lying about it. And then we had these other, we had field war, Bright Point and some other issues. So we put this report out and because it was UK listed, we do, we do pull punches in terms of what we say for something listed in the UK versus something, you know, we'd be more blunt in the US. But in any event, the company quickly collapsed. So this was, we put it out in December of 19 and within weeks we were hearing they were unable to make payroll. And then we went into early 2020 and the thing that sucked is all of a sudden COVID started sweeping the world. And these guys were the biggest operator of hospitals wow. in uh, the UAE and in, in other parts of the Middle East, they had significant hospital presences. So it's like, oh shit, like, you know, we're going to be, you know, as short sellers, we're going to be blamed for this too, for COVID. Um, but in any event, they, they did get, so they quickly, uh, they brought in uh, Louis Free's firm to investigate. And honestly, we were expecting a whitewash. I kind of feel like that's the standard for companies and for Louis Free. And to be fair, most law firms, but what they found, they couldn't cover up. They couldn't sweep it under the cover, uh, under the carpet. So NMC had reported in June of 2019, I think US $2.5 billion in debt on the balance sheet. They really had, turns out, 6.5. So they had just fraudulently kept $4 billion in debt off the balance sheet. I mean, we had no idea that it was on that scale at all. So that's one of the things that's also a lesson about being a short seller or an activist short seller is that what we can see from the outside, it's only a fraction of what's going on. And that kind of relates back to AMT when I was talking to the largest shareholders and one of them said to me, oh, $250 million, you know, in context of a 30 billion market cap, that's not a lot of money. And I said, well, there's this thing called the cockroach theory. And that was exactly what happened with NMC. We found a few roaches, but oh my God, the infestation was, you know, like next level. I had no idea. Yeah, because if you're if you're doing that on a small scale, chances are it's crept into the culture and there could be a lot more trouble. So that's another win and another one of your best trades. And you said before that you don't really get to celebrate after a win like that. But does it help sort of ease that that sense of rage that you talked about? Well, so the reality is that the company that the stuff I come across now it doesn't move me to the extent that it did in the early days, right? In the early days, it was like, oh my God, you know, this customer's fake. The chairman owns it. Well, after so many years of that, it's like, ah, yeah, it's a fake customer. Chairman owns it. And I get asked a lot of times, how do you choose what you, what you campaign on or what you short? And after the commercial considerations of, is it valid short? Is it a profound, you know, thesis, et cetera, et cetera, it's, What's interesting? Like what's, you know, we've done the, this thing. So the China fraud thing so many times, like it's boring. Let's not do that. Come on, find, find something that I want to get out of bed for. So there's definitely that element. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. 
So your fourth and final trade is your worst. I, I felt we were going to ascend up and stay on the good path, but this is actually your worst, and it's in May 2020, and that's GSX, G-O-T-U. Uh, and this is the world's in a pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine how difficult it is. It was difficult to do anything normally. So what happened here? Why does this one stand out to you? So GSX was, it's, you know, it's an online Chinese education company. Our research shows that probably 70 to 80% of the students are fake, that these are just bots. Probably, you know, you know, like close to 90% or more of the revenue is fake. Um, it's just, it's like, it's basically, it's close to empty box. But um, we were doing, I think it, we started in January of 2020 looking at it. And we had people on the ground in China registering for courses and using those logins, we were able to get, I mean, none of this information is ever well secured in China. Mm. So we didn't like, you know, hack anything. It's just there were these JSON files that were available, you know, in your browser if you were signed up for the class. So it showed, so we were able to see when everybody's entering the class and it was, it was just evident that the vast majority of the classes were bots. And we, reg- we did this for a large number of classes. Now, while this work is going on, first a, an activist short seller called Grizzly Research came out short GSX. So that hits the tape. We're like, no. And then we read the report and like, okay, they took a different approach. And you know what? The stock rebounded. Like, okay, it, there's, there's still something for us to do. We have a different approach. We're muddy waters. So, you know, we've got a bigger brand and there's still like real market cap there. Keep going. All of a sudden, Citron Research, short GSX. No, you know, like firing off all these emails internally, calling Andrew, like every expletive that you can imagine. Um, But then we looked at his report and like, oh, okay, different approach. And P.S., the stock was resilient. This should have told us something. I was just going to say, yeah. Nah, but you know, like we made so much money in March um, of 2020 by not even putting anything out, right? Like just knowing that thing, that COVID was going to be bad and that there was so much complacency out there by the end of March, like we're up big. We haven't done. And so we're just so fucking arrogant at this point thinking like, yeah, it's because, you know, Andrew's Andrew and we're muddy waters. And of course, Andrew would totally disagree with that characterization. <laughs> and he does have more Twitter followers than I do. But, um, but anyway, we figured this is in our wheelhouse and we're doing this research that's so locked in. It's just so tight. And so in June, we published on GSX, initially went down. And, you know, the, the, reality, the reality of activist short selling is that, you know, you, you often you want to leave on a residual position. That's what we call a sleep well at night position. It's like, you know, people like Jim Chanos, who stayed in business almost 40 years, I think, as a short seller, it's because he has mostly one and two percent positions. So that's kind of what you think you should run, you know, what we should run as residual positions as activist short sellers. But man, we could just tasted the blood and we were so full of ourselves. So we left on a much bigger position. And guess what? That thing was massively manipulated. And it just, it like quintipled or tripled or maybe even quintupled on us at one point. And every move that we were making to trim and then re-add, it was just wrong. It was the wrong move. And we took what was a great day one PL, incinerated it, and turned it into 
I think our biggest loss ever by the time we, we stopped fucking around with it. And we stopped fucking around with it and got out of all of our positions, including our crash puts, they expired just before it fell apart. Yeah. So, I mean, today the stock is in the dirt and, you know, you're not going to find anybody who's got like half a brain or more who's going to tell you GSX is real uh, or go to is real. But still, like that was that was a loss. That was a series of hard lessons. So is there someone that you I mean, it's it sounds like you're in a part of the business that you you have companies suing you, you have uh, regulators investigating you. It can it sounds like it could be really lonely. Are there people that you turn to, especially after a loss like that, sort of to lean on as mentors, you know, to, to sort of share battle stories with? How does that work? You know, there I'm because I'm in a very niche profession, there aren't really mentors this is something I used to think about, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Can I find a mentor? Mm-hmm. There isn't really, I don't know. I haven't been able to find it because it, a mentor, because it's, it's niche. And you know what? Like so much of what we deal with is confidential. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I look, I've, I've been screwed hard from the inside in terms of front running before. So I also do have trust issues with, with people. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like emotional support, man, I mean, my wife, like she's been there 26 years, ride or die for me through a lot of crazy shit. And so that's, that's where, that's where I get my, you know, my support and my strength from. Well, Carson, you certainly were very um, forthcoming and sharing with us today, um, both the, the wins and also the really hard lessons. And we so appreciate that. Cool. Thanks, Maggie. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com